It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. We will continue on a remorseless mission to squeeze Russia from the global economy piece by piece, day by day, and week by week. One thing, of course, we could also do is to make an open and unconditional offer to Ukrainian refugees to house them in the United Kingdom. We haven't seen all of what Putin's going to do at the moment. We do not know what his end goal is. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepker. On today's programme, we'll be speaking to the Labour MP and Shadow Education Minister Helen Hayes. Plus, how would Europe cope with the sudden termination of Russian gas supplies? And what would the knock-on effect be for the UK? We'll discuss with the authors of a new report. So Boris Johnson is finally in India for a much-delayed two-day visit. The PM will discuss trade and security with India's Premier Narendra Modi on his first visit to the country since becoming Prime Minister in 2019. Well, something Boris Johnson hopes will not be discussed today, that is his own conduct. The government has proposed to delay a decision on whether Johnson should face a parliamentary probe over the Partygate row. MPs were expected to vote today on an opposition motion for an inquiry over whether he made misleading claims to Parliament about alleged lockdown rule-breaking gatherings that took place during the pandemic. Ministers argue that the vote should wait until the investigations by both the Metropolitan Police and civil servant Sue Gray have actually reached their full conclusions. Well, let's speak now to Shadow Education Minister Helen Hayes. Helen is Labour MP for Dulwich and West Norwood in London. Helen, thanks so much for joining us on the programme today. Now, is it time for the Ministerial Code that offers guidance for elected officials to be ditched in favour of something a bit more concrete, perhaps a framework of rules with automatic consequences for wrongdoing, so that if a Prime Minister in future, Labour or Conservative, uh, uh, is, uh, is found guilty of breaking the law, then there are actual consequences laid down. Well, the Ministerial Code is very clear that if the Prime Minister or any Member of Parliament deliberately misleads the House of Commons, they are in contempt of Parliament, and they should resign. Uh, So that's not the question that is stopping uh, action being taken in relation to our Prime Minister, who has absolutely no regard for the truth. And what we're calling for today, and what Conservative MPs have the opportunity to do, is to put this matter of the Prime Minister's behaviour before the Privileges Committee, which has the power both to summon evidence, it could uh, request and require the Sue Gray report to be published and to be put before it. It can require photographs to be um, disclosed. Uh, It can look at all of the evidence and it can sanction the Prime Minister if it finds that the Prime Minister has 
deliberately misled MPs, which would amount to contempt of Parliament. So the levers that we need to deal with this problem of our Prime Minister, who is a national disgrace, um, are available to MPs today to use. And, and that, that question of the, the ministerial code and whether it is in need of reform is just not the priority today. The priority is for MPs to take a decision uh, to, to put this matter to the Privileges Committee for investigation. And our Helen, motion allows... Helen, we already, have, we already have an investigation by the Met, several investigations by the Met, and by civil servant Sue Gray, who is gathering all the evidence. Surely that is, surely that is enough. The, the, uh, the investigation by the police has already found that the Prime Minister has broken the law and the government is delaying the publication of the Sue Gray report. Trust and confidence in our government and, as a, by extension, our parliament is at rock bottom at the moment. And it is vitally important that MPs show leadership on this issue, uh, begin that process of restoring decency, honesty and integrity to our politics. I, OK, I, but Helen, then th there is a problem, though, surely, is there not? If it's not the ministerial code, what is it? Because effectively, the sanctioning of this prime minister, and in fact, any other prime minister where they're in the, the same position, uh, but in this particular case, is actually down to his own MPs and opposition leaders are being frustrated in this. Should there be automatic sanctions that, that take place rather than a kind of honour code, which is what happens, uh, you know, in terms of parliament now? Where is... Where is the issue? Because the Labour Party is being frustrated here. So we have today the opportunity to refer the matter to the Privileges Committee, which has the power to sanction the, the Prime Minister. And, and I don't know what Conservative MPs feel they need to wait for to make that decision to refer the Prime Minister to the committee that has the power to investigate fully, to look at the evidence and to sanction him. Um, that, that power is there already. Um, I used to sit in the Shadow Cabinet Office team. I looked in detail at the Ministerial Code. I think there is a need to, to look more broadly and in a different timescale at the reform of, of the Ministerial Code and whether it's fit for purpose in the circumstance where we have a Prime Minister that, that will simply ignore it um, in, in the case of you know, his Cabinet Ministers who, who were found to um, you know, be bullying, for example. The Prime Minister simply ignored the Ministerial Code. There, there is certainly some issues there, and, and I believe there's a need to look at the Ministerial Code. But, but that is, an, if, if we're thinking about the question that's in front of us today, that is simply another form of dither in delay uh, when we have the, 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 the ability to make a decision to refer the matter to the Privileged Committee who can investigate in full, can summon all of the evidence, and ha has the power to sanction the Prime Minister if it is found that he has deliberately misled Parliament. And, okay, and I want to ask to... you. I want to ask you on a different matter. The uh, government's policy for uh, processing migrants in Rwanda. Now, plenty of criticism of that. I know that Labour is opposed to that policy, but does Labour have a plan to sort out the uh, problem with people crossing the English Channel? Absolutely. Um, I've been to Northern France several times, and I've spoken there both with refugees and with organisations that work to provide humanitarian support to refugees in northern France. And it's clear that the, the government's proposal to process refugees to Rwanda simply isn't a solution 
to the problem of desperate people taking to the English Channel, uh, the vast majority of whom, if they survive that journey, are, are found to be asylum seekers um, eligible for asylum in the UK. Uh, so the, the, the problem is that we need to cooperate with France and with other European countries to crack down on people smugglers who are vile organisations that, that exploit the most vulnerable people. We need to introduce safe and legal routes so that vulnerable, desperate people don't have to take to the sea. And if they are fleeing horrific persecution or war, they can find sanctuary in the UK and apply for that uh, through a safe and legal route and don't have to risk their lives at sea. Mm. Um, that would include the Dub scheme, which the government, uh, the, the Tory government committed to and then cancelled after only a tiny number of the, the promised number of, of children had been able to come and be reunited with family in the mm. UK. Um, and we would make it a crime to advertise smuggling on social media. Um, Labour is ahead of the Conservatives in the polls, but only barely. You've not managed to make much headway with voters. Genuine question, why not? Is it policy? Is it personality? What is it? I mean, the rally round the flag from the COVID crisis, that, that's gone now, surely. So, you know, with the Prime Minister who's been in uh, so much difficulty and was close, at least in Partygate, to perhaps losing um, the Premiership, why, why has Labour struggled? We lost the 2019 general election very badly indeed, and we had as a consequence a, a long road back to, to build trust and confidence in communities up and down the country. And what the, show, what the polls show us is that our efforts are, are working and people are coming back to Labour in significant numbers. And, you know, there couldn't be a greater contrast between uh, the leadership that the Labour Party is showing in Parliament and the total dereliction of duty of Conservative MPs and the Prime Minister down um, at the moment. Most uh, shameful Cabinet ministers turning out to defend Boris Johnson, to minimise his misdemeanours, uh, to claim that, you know, a, 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 his um, Partygate fine is equivalent to a speeding fine to claim that it was just, you know, 10 minutes with cake and, and therefore somehow that didn't matter. And I think of my constituents today, including the family of my constituent, Ruby, who died aged 18 on the day that the Prime Minister was partying in the garden of 10 Downing Street with his family um, and his colleagues. And Ruby's family would have given anything for 10 minutes of breaking the rules so that her teenage friends could come and say goodbye to Ruby in person. And it fills me with utter disgust, this approach that we are seeing from Tory cabinet ministers minimising mm. the Prime Minister's breaking of his own rules but, when 10 the, minutes of breaking the rules for millions of people up and down the country would yes, have made an enormous difference. But Boris Johnson is going to face the ballot box, surely. I mean, critics have accepted that. Is it Keir Starmer that he's going to face as Labour leader at the next general election, do you believe? Well, voters have an opportunity in just two weeks' time uh, to show what they think of Boris Johnson and his uh, utterly vacant Tory government um, because we have local elections um, in many parts of the UK and I hope that voters really will use that opportunity to send a message to this government about their disgraceful Helen, approach. Helen, would prefer that Labour was 
a little further ahead in the polls, though? It's not a, not a big gap, given all the terrible, terrible headlines for the Conservatives, is it? Um, we, we all would prefer, um, you know, great leads in the polls, but the polls are not the ultimate test of, of confidence. That comes at the ballot box and, and the first opportunity, the next opportunity that voters have uh, to uh, show what they think of this government comes in two weeks' time and... I hope across the country that that uh, people will will vote Labour, and okay. uh, you know show sh- show sh- sh- you know not a, not only in the polls, um, but in reality what they think of this government and where their trust and confidence lies. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. First of all, I want to have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. And for that, we're joined by Bloomberg's Leanne Gerrans. Hi, Leanne. Good morning. Sky reporting new additions to one of the sets of bidders for Chelsea FC. Who and why? Caroline, I feel like this is another twist in the battle for Chelsea Football Club, isn't it? I feel like this has been rolling on for a few months now almost. But as you just mentioned there, Sky News has exclusively revealed that Lewis Hamilton, I don't think he needs an introduction, but I'll tell you anyway, he's a Formula One driver. And Serena Williams, of course, the very famous female tennis champion, have agreed to back one of the remaining three bidders for Chelsea. Now it's alleged the two sports stars have committed to spend £10 million of their very own money on the bid for Chelsea. And this has been spearheaded by Sir Martin Broughton. Now he is the former Liverpool and British Airways chairman and he is one of the most prominent bidders that we do know about in this bid for Chelsea. There's two others. And I must say this comes as a bit of a surprise to me only because I know Lewis Hamilton is actually an Arsenal fan. So I wonder what this Chelsea bid's all about. But we should find out and more on that bid. And of course, it's since Roman Abramovich mm. was sanctioned by the UK government over um, links to Russia in light of the war in Ukraine. And Leanne, somebody is celebrating a birthday today. Oh, and it's none other than Queen Elizabeth. And she's 96, so a grand old age. And it's really interesting because she's going to be having a more quiet birthday. Well, 
what I always thought was going to be a quiet birthday because she is 96 and it isn't her official birthday. It's her actual birthday. She's one of these few people in the world that gets two birthdays. But I do suspect that she'll get a lot of Zoom calls from her family because she's got a lot of great grandchildren and grandchildren now. And um, But her official birthday is going to be in June. And that's, of course, going to be the Platinum Jubilee. So there's lots ahead for the Queen to celebrate. And um, I really like the fact that there was a lovely picture of her with two white ponies this morning. That's her official birthday picture. And that's, of course, because she absolutely loves horses. But we also must remember that the Queen has not appeared in many public outings and engagements of late. And we do know that this is due to her mobility. She had COVID and she hasn't been very well. So most of her work is from Windsor Castle itself. And I do know that there's a lot of speculation over what event she will or will not be attending at the Platinum Jubilee. That is, of course, fast approaching. And um, if you want to, there's a competition for the Jubilee and it's mm. to get an original dessert for the Queen, which I think is quite oh, nice. Yes. When it was the a coronation, baking. yes, there's cake baking. And I, lo- I think the Queen loves this kind of thing. So something sweet for her as she has pretty much had quite a turbulent year so yeah. far. Yeah. I, don't know if, uh, I don't know if I'd like two birthdays. I feel like one's enough, really. They come around quite often, don't they? <laughs> Bar so. humbug, I'd like yes, to. I Second like to the to. 5th of June is the Platinum <laughs> Jubilee weekend. But yeah, there is speculation about yeah how many mm-hmm. events you'll be able to attend. I mean, yeah, k- key figurehead. Clearly. Yes, but of course, we key figure here, here in the UK, as you said, Caroline, mm. we wish her well. And if you hear any guns this afternoon, there is a gun salute to the Queen a little oh, bit okay. later on. So we wish her a happy birthday. All right, so all the political and rule news. There we are. Bloomberg's Leanne Gans. Thanks so much for being with us. So Russia's invasion of Ukraine means countries are scrambling to address energy security concerns, even as consumers are hit by a cost of living crisis. And the IPCC says we're not doing enough to avert catastrophic climate change. So how would Europe cope with the sudden termination of Russian gas supplies? And what would the knock-on effect be for the UK? Well, joining us now to discuss this, Caspian Conran from energy consultancy Beringa Partners uh, to discuss Beringa's credibility and durability index. Uh, Caspian, thanks so much for joining us uh, on the programme. Now, the UK and Europe are all too aware of their dependency on uh, Russia. Um, could uh, an oil embargo be done in, in, in the short term, an oil and gas embargo? How, how feasible is that? Yeah, I think great to be back with you. I think the short answer is, is no, this is, this is not feasible. The dependency, especially of the EU, continental Europe, on Russian gas in particular, there are alternatives for oil, but really gas is uh, something that there are limited alternatives. We've done analysis which shows from domestic production, from ramping up nuclear and coal, additional pipeline imports, you could get about 40 BCM of gas displacement. Now, in 2020, we received 140 BCM of Russian gas, so nowhere near the levels of displacement we would need. So the real constraint or the alternative is global LNG. Can we source liquefied natural gas from other sources to try to displace the remaining 95 BCM of volume. Again, the short answer is actually there's two major constraints that makes that unlikely. The first is that spare LNG capacity, terminal capacity in Europe and the UK amounts to just 75 BCM capacity. So already we're 20 to 30 BCM short of that target, even if we expect that terminals would run at peak efficiency, something that's never been happened before. 
The other major constraint is available LNG on global markets. We know that at the moment, LNG markets are extremely tight. Demand, particularly from Asia, China, engaged in massive coal-to-gas switching, is pumping 20 to 30 BCM of gas demand onto global markets every year. And the holy grail of U.S. shale has yet to come online in, in a real meaningful way. We don't expect that till 2025. Mm. So even in this very tight market, we would be bidding away cargoes from other inelastic uh, uh, consumers, such as in the Asia-Pacific, which makes any kind of displacement of Russian gas extremely costly. Uh, and so, uh, unfortunately, if we're looking at that terrible worst-case scenario, we think the only real hope for continental Europe would be demand curtailment, i.e. Okay. shutting down major industrial producers. Yeah, so there are all the difficulties, which, I mean, I think that a lot of European and British politicians are aware of, um, that an oil embargo against Russia, uh, certainly short term, is just very difficult, if not impossible, without huge consequences. Mm. What happens, though, if Russia decides to turn the tables and apply a little bit of the pressure uh, on Europe? How would Britain cope with that? I hear a lot from MPs who speak to us on a daily basis. You know, that Britain uh, has got uh, oil and gas off the, off the coast of Scotland, and so we wouldn't be as badly affected. Is that wishful thinking? So in terms of supply security, no. Uh, clearly, the UK's exposure directly to Russian gas is, is relatively small. It's just 3% of total energy consumption, unlike 40% of Europe, continental Europe. But the price impact will still be felt because gas markets work in regional benchmarks. So whether that be our Norwegian pipeline imports or the uh, LNG that we're sourcing from Qatar, from, from uh, uh, the US, will be priced in accordance that supply shock. And we know that prices are already 300, 400% up on 2019. So we won't be in a situation where the lights will be going off. But with inflation expected to peak at 8, 9% this year, you would expect that to be even worse, compounding the cost of living crisis for UK households. Do you think Russia really would turn off the taps though because russia clearly gets a huge proportion of its of its foreign exchange by selling fossil fuels and it would be not in its interest to, to do so i don't know if you have a view on that uh, certainly not in the short term and, and as you say you know if we go back during the, the height of the cold war the gas kept flowing regardless of the yeah. political crises the bay of pigs cuban missile crisis and it kept flowing for one core reason Russia didn't have an alternative consumer, and Europe, frankly, didn't have an alternative source of energy and gas. So that codependence has meant that actually, regardless of the political frictions historically, we have kept Russian gas in our energy mix. The mm. dilemma now is, is that changing? There are alternative buyers, potentially, of Russian gas, namely China. We know the Trans-Siberian Pipeline offers 50 BCM of alternative um, sources of supply from Russia to China. And of course, on the demand side, Europe is increasingly having other uh, available options, most notably US LNG. But mm. I agree with you that that feels like a five year, we know where this is heading in five, 10 years. Both of those players are going to try to reduce their dependency on each other. But in the immediate term, within the next six to 12 months, I agree the costs on both sides of a dramatic curtailment of Russian gas flows would be uh, so catastrophic not just for the consumer, but also the supplier, as to render it a very unlikely scenario. 
Yeah, I mean, it's that 12 months to five year time horizon that's really crucial, isn't it? And I, uh, I'm curious about your view on this. What if Europe were, end, were to end up being in a kind of uh, hostile, hot pursuit of its own energy supplies? Would the UK post-Brexit be a loser in that battle? I mean, we saw it a bit with vaccines, the race to get vaccines. This is another huge strategic issue. Yeah, it's a great question. So we know that Norway, as a member of the EEA, is uh, covered by a European energy uh, security mechanism, which would effectively allow the Commission and member states to mandate the compulsory purchases at market prices of Norwegian volume. Now, we know that about 40% of our imports of gas come from Norway. So, of course, the supply risk for us would be if that mandate was employed, as with the vaccine, could the UK suddenly lose supply of gas? Theoretically, yes. However, we don't believe that that's a likely scenario because actually the EU is more dependent on us and our free LNG terminal capacity uh, than necessarily they would on Norway. So the EU's best response is to work with the UK to get pipeline gas across the English Channel using our pipeline, leveraging our LNG terminal capacity to do so mm -hmm. rather than uh, effectively aggravating okay. a, a conflict with the UK by mandating the use of, of Norwegian volume. So we think that cooperation is more likely than out-and-out confrontation in this sense. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.